Welcome back to another episode of Meet the Creatives. Today, I am here with Barry Wetcher, who's had an amazing career spanning almost four decades as a motion picture sales photographer, and he's collaborated with some of Hollywood's most distinguished filmmakers, including Martin Scorsese on Goodfellas, literally, literally my favorite movie ever. I know you're not supposed to say literally for everything, but that literally is my favorite movie. Oliver Stone on Wall Street, a bunch of other amazing movies, Die Hard. Thank you for being on the show, first and foremost. It's it's an honor to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. I think it was in the fall I did a shoot with my friend John. His family works in the film business and worked on Sopranos, which I know that you had worked for a time there. And I was asking about, you know, how do I get involved in like the film industry? And, And then he told me about the stills photographers, and I think it was the, the local 600. I'm probably butchering that there. But long story short, went down the wormhole and started looking this up. And like everything else in my life, I was like, this is my new career path. This is what I'm going to do. And I found a video of you talking at SVA about working with Martin Scorsese on Goodfellas. And I was like, I got to get this guy in the show. So to backtrack a little bit, I would love to know, you know, that origin story for you. We're talking about like filmmaking and storytelling. What is that first moment with a camera? What's that first experience? For me, the first camera I ever that I ever owned was a present I got from my bar mitzvah. Oh. And it was a Polaroid Swinger. <laughs> it was called a Polaroid Swinger. It was a white Polaroid camera. And that was the first camera I ever owned. And uh, as I got a little older, I wanted a 35-millimeter camera, but financially it was out of, you know, out, out of reach for me. That didn't happen until I was about 18 or 19, 18, I would say 18 years old. Um, but yes, actually the magic moment for me was when I learned how to develop uh, develop photographs and seeing your first print come uh, come out of the developer, that's total magic. Yeah. And that's really what, what sold me. And unfortunately, I think today, because uh, people who learn photography probably really aren't learning with film cameras. They don't have that magic experience. You know, you're shooting digital, it's right there, it's immediate. You know, there's you know, breathtakingly waiting for this photograph to develop and <laughs> develop. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. I would love to sit here and pretend like I'm the authority on all things film cameras and stuff like that as somebody who has a, a podcast that's predominantly about photography, but, but I don't really. I did have one class in high school with Mr. Babbick. I still remember the name. And, and we shot film and we uh, were in the dark room. But that was really my only experience. And then my grandpa had an old Minolta camera that he would take everywhere. And when he passed, it was, you know, all that stuff was bestowed upon me. And everyone thought it would be like this special thing. And at first I thought it was, you know, like super depressing. But eventually I kind of started going through it. And he had these rolls on here. I actually have it here for today. It's Kodak 400. I don't know if that's like Porta. Is that the same thing? I was trying to... Is it, is it black and white or color film? It's color film. Right. And I was trying to like replicate this look digitally. This is how sad it is these days. This is how much we're longing to get back to the past. But sure. it's thir- 35 millimeter color print film with 24 exposures. Right. And I was thinking to myself... I mean, he was a great photographer. He just had a, a knack for it. But I was thinking to myself, 24 exposures. I take 24 exposures... In like 24 <laughs> seconds, yeah, yeah. And, and it's so different because it's like a sort of like a law of averages thing. What was that experience like and how often did you do, develop that film and it was just awful? <laughs> oh, we, well, if, if we're talking professionally or we're talking before, before I was there professionally, well, first of all, shooting film, you had to know about color temperature. So if you were shooting daylight, you needed daylight film if you were shooting 
in Tungsten Light, you had to shoot Tungsten film. Um, then you had the choice of shooting neg color negative film, which is what you have in that role, or shooting positive slide film, uh, which is much more accurate. Um, colors were beautiful, especially Kodachrome, but you had to be so precise with your exposure. You really couldn't be more than, let's say, a third of a third of a stop off the really? slide film. Uh, negative film, you had a little more latitude. So, you know, you had to have a lot of different roles of film depending upon uh, what you were shooting. And then each film, each film stock is a different speed. So, you know, you could be shooting 100 ASA or, or 200 ASA or 400 ASA. So you had to have a lot of different stock of film with you when you went out for a shoot, unless you were doing a studio, studio shoot. Do you think that that made you a better photographer, especially being in, in like the film space, it's all about like, you know, composition, rule of thirds, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think either you have an eye for composition or you don't. I don't think, uh, Yeah. I, I mean, my personal opinion is I don't think that's a learned, learned thing. Either you have that eye or not. But what it did is it makes you much more aware of light and the difference between highlights and shadows so you're reading the light with the with a with the meter whether it's a spot meter or an incident meter so i think technically it made me i don't think i a better photographer but a more understanding photographer about light um i i think today when you shoot digital you know you're not thinking of those things or most people are not thinking of those things and yeah. it's only when you when you get into post-processing that you have to deal with that but when you were shooting film had to be pretty accurate uh, yeah. today with digital you could be off if you're shooting raw you could be off one or two stops and you could still salvage a good image out of it with slide film and even color negative film that really wasn't possible one of the things that you said in that youtube video that i found you know you were talking about how basically like the publicist can look at the images and like kill the image do you feel like people were a little bit more forgiving back then of what things look like because now even when I see it like with my own clients, like just doing like BS family portraits, like people expect it to be like completely retouched and they want to look like it's on the cover of freaking Vogue. But when you right. were shooting in film, were people a little bit more like lenient or, 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 or not necessarily? No, not, not. when it came to actors. <laughs> I mean, it's individual. Uh, but no, not, you know, as a whole, no, not really. And it's, um, we call those kill rights. Every actor in their contract has what's called kill rights, and they can, depending upon the power that they have or their agent, they can kill upwards of, let's say, 75% of what you shoot. So <sighs> it's, it's either the actor uh, who does it, them. some actors do the kills themselves, they look at every frame I shoot, or their publicists do it for them. So you, you never, I, I prefer. I prefer when an actor does it themselves and they get a better sense of what, what they're looking for as opposed right. to a publicist because the publicist, you know, doesn't always understand the character. So just to make a point about that, uh, sure. someone like Mer Meryl Streep, she might kill a photograph um, that where she looks really great, but she's killing it not because she thinks she looks bad. She's killing it because she doesn't think she looks like she's in character. I appreciate someone like that as opposed to a publicist who's really just wants their client to look great and that's it, you know, yeah. cover a mode, so to speak. Yeah.
I know that Goodfellas is is a, is a long time ago now, but what was one of like the first movies that you got onto? And then, uh, you know, as we're going in sort of a linear direction here, I would love to talk about that particular movie just as a, you know, as, right. a, as a nerd so, myself. Right. So the first real movie that I did, so to speak, was a horror movie uh, that was produced by New Line Cinema, which I, I mean, New Line Cinema is a, a big organization now. It's actually part of Warner Brothers. Um, but at that time, they were an independent film company. They were well known for making John Waters movies. I don't know if they were John Waters, but you know, movies like Pink Flamingos, really crazy out there movies. Anyway, this was their first foray into like sort of, we'll say mainstream. And in those days, most horror movies were non-union because they were low budget. But this had like real actors, meaning Jack Palance, Donald Pleasance, Martin Landau. Um, so that was like the first, those are my first movie. Those were my first real movie. And then my second movie um, was a movie with John Sales called Baby It's You. And that's what got me into the union. And then once I got into the union, I started the bigger and better movie. So that, yeah. that was my foray into uh, shooting stills on film. How long was it before you got into the union? It was pretty quick. You hear all sorts of things about like how many hours you have to log, who you know. Like, right. Talk about well, that process, what it was like then and what it's like now sort of thing. So the process... Uh, the process to get into the union today, for those people that are interested in that, is A, if you uh, can show that you've worked 30 days as a still photographer on a film, employed as a still photographer on a non-union film, uh, that could get you in, uh, get you on what's called the roster, which gets you in the union. Or if you could show 100 days in three years, that would also get you into the union. And then lastly, there's another workaround, which actually only works on the East Coast. If you have a producer that wants to hire you on a union show, he or she can lobby the union saying they want to hire you. And the odds are that the union would then let you be, uh, let you join. Who do you know, Barry? Who do you know? Who are your contacts? On? <laughs> yeah, that's when, cool. you're, when you're ready, just let me know. Okay. I'm ready. That's good. I'm uh, that's cool. I was really fascinated by that talk at SVA you gave because so much of what you said lined up with my friend John, who has worked in film. You know, you're just working crazy hours, day after day after day. It's also like to the detriment of your family and your own personal well-being sometimes. As somebody who's been in the game for a while, you're able to talk about this more than um, maybe somebody who's just like just starting out would be, but what is the reality versus, you know, cause I have it in my head. Like, you know, I would work on a show and I'd be like, you know, friends would we'd be chopping it up on the side. We'd be getting coffee and, but it's not, I would imagine that's the, the reality of, of what people think it is versus what it actually is. Right. So of course, anyone who's not in the business thinks you're, you're, your life in the business is glamorous because you're, you're hanging out with Martin Scorsese, you know, right? Because you're, you're at the diner, you're, 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 <laughs> you know, and, and those things do happen. You yeah, know? I I'm mean, sure. they they do happen. Uh, they're few and far between, but they do happen. But working on films, whether you're a still photographer, or grip, or, or whatever, production assistant, uh, is a minimum of twelve hours a day, more likely fourteen hours a day, and if you count your commutes, it could easily be sixteen hours a day. Um, and it's a great life in many ways and in other ways 
your personal life definitely will suffer. Your family life will suffer. If you have children, you're going to miss a lot of birthdays and events. Um, although it's a little different today. When, when I started, it was very, first of all, there wasn't as much work as there is today. There was no streaming. There was, you know, five channels on TV right. and, you know, um, and, and, and the major studios. So there wasn't as much work per se. In New York, at least, you always knew that January through March was dead, so you were always off those months. Um, but but anyway, you know, the amount of hours you work um, are enormous, and it does take its toll, you know, and that's one of the things the unions are trying to curb is the long hours, um, and they're much longer today than they were 30, 40 years ago when I started. Um, uh-huh. You think the opposite? Do you think there'd be yes. <laughs> no? Well, it had it had to do with uh, um, the contracts. In the, I'm going to use the word old days. Our contracts are really, really strong. Um, so there was double time, triple time, you know, weekend pay, and over the years, our contract has become diluted. So there's uh, less in, uh, disincentives. Uh, for producers to work less hours. It's more cost-effective for them to cram in all these hours than to make the schedule longer. What's the part you got to love about it and, and, and have it not for? I'm a photographer, so for me, if the movie is visual, I get really juiced. There's a lot of factors that go into that for me. Uh, how's the movie lit? Because I don't control the lighting unless I'm doing a studio shoot. You're working with a cinematographer who's brilliant, who's an artist. You know, my work is really going to shine. That could be very, very satisfying. And I think when you're first starting out, it really doesn't matter. You're just happy to be working and you're happy happy to be on a film set. You know, a film crew becomes your family. You're with them for three or four months, and you know, 12, 14 hours a day. They become your family. So, you know, that could be very rewarding if you're a social person. But again, as a photographer, especially as I as my career progressed and I uh, was working consistently, there were movies I worked on that really didn't juice me, and I was really doing it for the money, you know. And mostly those are romantic comedies; they're just not, you know, right. they're not really visual. They're fun; they can be fun. Then, if you work on a period piece or a movie that's Roger Deakins is shooting, you're going to get juice because it's so beautiful. You're making beautiful images. And then the other thing, of course, is you're right there while these, many of these actors are incredible actors and you're watching this performance, you know, two feet away and you could be blown away by that, you know? Yeah. yeah I, I, I never say, even thought about that. That's crazy. Like, yeah, like right. you saw Goodfellas live. Right. That's insane to think about. I never really thought of it for whatever reason. It's just like dawning on me now. I just never thought of it in that context. Right. That, that so, is really cool. So to give you an example of that, I worked on a movie called The Crucible. There were many Crucible movies, but this one was with Daniel Day-Lewis and Winona Ryder and Joan Allen. And there was one scene where Daniel Day-Lewis was doing his thing. And, you know, it's pretty powerful. You know, it's really pretty imagine. powerful. That's a real positive. And then, again, because I'm a photographer, what I find interesting or fun or satisfying is different than somebody who's an electrician. Each craft has their own things that juice them. But then the other thing, of course, is I got to travel a lot. 
and I got to do things I never normally would do. I had a baseball in Yankee Stadium. I played, uh, I played a three-on-three basketball game in Madison Square Garden. You know, I hit a ball. Wow, really? That's so cool. Forest Hills Tennis Stadium. You know, that kind of stuff is is priceless. Dude, people are gonna love this podcast. This is, this is like so fascinating. This is so cool. Just to backtrack a little bit, you were talking about the family. I, I'm a diehard fan of the show Mad Men. I loved Mad Men. But I watched this interview with John Hamm. Mad Men had just wrapped, and he was devastated by it. He was talking about the show ending like he was coming out of like a marriage. And it, right. and it, and it wasn't that he didn't want to move on and do other things, but it was like that was his family for all those years. With all these people that were such a tight-knit group of people are not going to see each other again. That could be probably kind of kind of a bummer. That's very true. And, and for people who are just starting out in the business, um, they have a hard time with it because they're not used to it. So yeah. someone like myself and other people that are doing it for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, movie ends, and it's like, okay, you know, you, you know that, especially in New York, the, really, the film world is really a small, incestuous world. Yeah. So, you know, at some point you're going to see some of those people again, you know, so yeah, um, you kind of get used to it. But I think when you're first starting, that's really the hard part. You have this family and then, it, you know, it's like you got just got divorced, you know. And, <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. So, um, but the, the other thing about uh, that I was going to mention about the downside of, of being a freelancer, because we're all freelancers, you sign a contract just for the duration of the movie is uh, less so today because there's so much work but you know job's over man you're you're basically laid off now you got to find another job so i try to explain to people in my life it's like i've had 140 jobs that i got laid off and you know how to find another job yeah that's you know you, you have to be of a certain ilk to uh be able to live like that where you don't know where your next paycheck's coming from but today there's so much work um, that that's less and less so than it was when I first started. Before we go too far, talk to me about the the experience with Goodfellas, and then I swear I'll I'll drop it and I'll. I'll <laughs> You're obsessed with Goodfellas. I am. It's, it's like the best. <laughs> move. I know I go from rags to riches. Uh, let me ask you a question. How old were you when Goodfellas came out? 1989, 1990. I was I was uh, born in 1991, but my <laughs> okay. but my friend, I watched it on uh, on VHS at my. Fr- so I had this this huge crush on my friend's mother. She in, in her right. heyday, she was absolutely gorgeous, and she looked just like Karen and Good and Goodfellas. And I watched it like at her house. It was one of those things that we were supposed to watch it for fifteen minutes, and they kind of just forgot we were there. And then I loved it, and then I kind of forgot about it. And then you know, years later, I watched it as an adult, and I was like, "This is the greatest fucking thing ever." Right. And, and and all of Scorsese's movies, I feel like. Um, I mean, there are a couple holes in my. I have ADHD, so sitting through like big long movies is kind of a tricky thing for me. But I love myself a good Martin Scorsese movie. I, don't, I love that. I'm so all over the place that 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 fast pace jump cut style that he has, right. I can really get down with that. It's it's only yeah. been later in life that I've got into like Billy Wilder's intricate screenwriting shit. But Scorsese is like a young rambunctious kid who thinks that like mob movies are awesome. Goodfellas, right. baby. All right, so. Just so you know, I, I worked uh, with Marty before that on, on the movie After Hours. I think that was 1985. Oh, wow. I think it was. So that's kind of how I ended up getting Goodfellas. Um, 
And actually, let me preempt this by saying I owe my relationship with Marty to uh, a deceased cinematographer named Michael Bauhaus, very famous German cinematographer who became Marty's cinematographer for many, many movies. And Marty uh, basically, and not Marty, Michael basically introduced me to Marty. And that's how I got uh, After Hours, and that led to Goodfellas down the road. Um, um, so Goodfellas for me was um, a little bit like uh, being in the territory because I grew up with guys like that, you know, wannabe, some guys that were wannabes and some guys that were actually yeah. you know, wise guys. Right. So that world was, you know, not alien to me. Um, and Marty in those days had a very interesting way of working. He did a lot of rehearsals, which today you don't see. And it was not uncommon for Marty to do four or five rehearsals before we actually rolled the camera. Wow. Um, and again, in those days it was filmed. Um, so, um, you didn't really want to waste too much film. And then, um, Marty would, uh, at the end of a take when he called cut, no one was allowed to to talk because generally what happens on the film says once they call cut everybody's you know repositioning and talking and saying you gotta do this gotta do that but marty's system was uh, when he called cut no one was allowed to talk um until marty gave his note he would walk over to the actors give his notes and then once he gave his notes to the actors when people could you know talk and say whatever they had to say wow that was interesting. I'd never seen that before. And quite honestly, I've never seen that after. I watched some interview with Jonah Hill talking about Martin Scorsese. I presume it was probably when they worked on the, the Wolf of Wall Street. He can learn more from talking to Marty in 20 minutes than like you could ever learn in like a lifetime. Like he's just like. It's true. But Marty's knowledge of film is like unsurpassed. Yeah. He, you know, he knows so many movies, he knows so much. And. He's very gracious about that, you know, especially to younger people. Um, he's he's very gracious about passing that knowledge on to to younger people who are, you know want to learn. I got to get him on the show. He's he's coming up next. Martin Scorsese. I mean, there's three hundred people who listen to it. It'll be amazing. Uh, right. that's, <laughs> that's so cool. Well, I appreciate you uh, in, indulging me on that. Ed. Sure. So I, I'll just give you another little tidbit because people yes. like Star stories. Um, so when I worked when I worked on After Hours, Marty used to have his father Charlie and his mother. I can't remember her name. Katie, I think her name was Katie. Um, they used to be either they were in his movies. They would be in his. They have small cameos. Yeah. In fact, his mother, his mother and father are both in Goodfellas. Yeah. Um, and uh, his father Charlie would often work as a tailor on movies, you know, because that's what he was. He was his background. I know the I know the mom and the mom. Obviously, I know she's she's in like everything. What what the, who is the where was the dad in Goodfellas? His dad. He's in, he's in the prison scene with um, Paul Sorvino and Ray Liotta, and he's cooking. Yes. And okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. I remember cooking. now. Yeah. His name yeah. was Charlie. Anyway. Um, on Goodfellow, on After Hours, I don't think they were in the movie. No, they weren't in the movie, but they were around all the time. And um, I did these this beautiful portrait of of uh, Marty's father, Charlie. Um, and I, you know, I gave him the print, whatever. And Marty's mother, who sometimes would cook for the crew, um, said to me, "You know, well, what can I do for you? What can, you know, I want to 
you know, give you a little present for giving us this photograph. And sarcastically, I just said, yeah, I heard you're a great cook. Uh, how about dinner? And she said, sure. And she invited me and my wife at the time, my <laughs> ex-wife now, That's over crazy. to over to their apartment. I believe it was at 3rd Avenue. And uh, we had dinner. My wife and I had dinner with Marty's parents. And she told us, like, stories about Marty as a child. Oh, my like that. God. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah. That was Dude, pretty cool. Thank you for sharing that story. That is, that is entirely too cool. Talk to me about, you know, an average day on set and and in today's day and age, what kind of technology should you be investing in, looking to do? And, you know, we talked about the unions and stuff like that, but what kind of gear is a good, like, starting thing? I know that mirrorless cameras are big because they make less noise. Yes, mirrorless cameras are, are absolutely necessary today. Otherwise, um, you'd have to shoot how, how we shot when I started, which is a camera inside a blimp, which is a, basically a sound silencing box, uh, which is very cumbersome and uh, takes quite a while to get used to working with and is not 100% uh, soundproof. So today, with mirror, once mirrorless cameras came out, uh, it really kind of changed my end of, my end of the industry. Uh, now you were free to be... Um, not encumbered by this big box that surrounds your camera. You could easily change your service speeds and your aperture, whereas before you had to open up this box to do that. Um, that's absolutely necessary. And, you know, the systems that most people use, most unit photographers use, are either Sony, the Nikon Z system, and the Fuji system. Those are the three most common cameras used on a film set. Still photography. If you have your own gear, the studio like pays you for your for your gear. Like, how does that kind of stuff work? Do you, are you right. ever assigned a camera? Like, you're working with so and so, and they're doing this. And no, you you basically renting your you rent your equipment. We call it your kit. You rent your kit um, on a, on a daily basis. Most people do it on a daily basis, um, and that could. The rates are a little different for t episodic TV than they are for feature films. So I would say right now, people are getting between 250 a day to upwards of 450 And if you're really lucky, maybe 500 a day just for your equipment per day. Now, uh, if you're doing a studio, a gallery shoot where you have to either, if you have to bring in your own lighting equipment, you're going to charge them extra for that lighting equipment, or you're going to rent it and the production is going to pay for it. Or you're going to um, have the electricians and grips help you use, you know, uh, tungsten or LED lighting that's already there on set. That's cool. But, but yes, that you, you, you know, that's a big plus is that you're making money on, on your equipment. So that way you can always, keep updating your equipment and you're getting, you know, you're basically getting paid for it. So That right there might be, <laughs> I might be calling you later this week and Barry, I get to put a lot of thought into this and I think I'm going to do it. Yeah. All right. Um, but let me, let me say this, that yeah. um, I'm trying to be diplomatic, but there really is no way to be diplomatic. Okay. Produce, producers are always looking for the bottom at the bottom line. Yes. And they're always going to try to uh, they're always going to try to cheap cheap out on on your rate and your equipment. Um, 
obviously as you grow in the industry and you have some stature, you have a lot more juice in what, you know, what you're going to ask for. So someone who's just starting out or has only been in the, in the industry for five years is not going to ask for $400 a day for their right. equipment. They should, but they're probably not. I mean, and they'll probably be offered 200 or 250 and they're going to accept it because, you know, they're just starting out and that's understandable. But it'd be great if all the still photographers could uh, have some solidarity and set, we used to call it the street rate, but that doesn't really exist anymore. There used to be a street rate, meaning all of us would try to keep at that rate. Um, but there's so many people doing what we do that it's all over the place now. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any advice for people that are, you know, they're they're on their first movie, they're they're in it, they got their they're at the dance, so to speak. What advice would you give to somebody in that place? Like, their things are going well, but they're getting kind of like itchy. You know, they want to advance their career. What do you say right. to someone who's like that? I think the most important thing is obviously networking. You know, as a still photographer on a on a film set, because episodic TV is really kind of a little different. And how you get your jobs in episodic than on feature films. So, on a on a feature film, you're you could be hired by uh, the producer, you could be hired by the uh, director, or you could be hired by the star of the movie. You know, so you never really know where that's coming from. You know, you never really know who's got the juice, that, who's hiring, who's actually hiring, as opposed to an electrician. An electrician gets hired by a gaffer. You know, always by the gaffer. So a little, a little different. So uh, having said that, on oh, an episode of TV, the studio, the studio photo editors have a lot to say uh, who about who's going to work on an episodic show. Um, of course, the producers have to sign off on it, but that's how that works. So, uh, so networking is really the most important thing. And you know, you got to have a personality that's, you know, congenial. It's, uh, you know, pleasant for people. People have to not only like your work, but they got to like you. So I would say that it's important for someone just starting to ingratiate themselves uh, to the people who can further help them further their career, like producers, line producers especially the creative producers and the actors and the directors um it doesn't mean you should be mean to anybody else you shouldn't be and that also doesn't mean if somebody in an authoritative position is abusing you in any kind of way that you have to ingratiate yourself so then you you know you're a human being and you can't let people abuse you and I think that's less so today because of the Me Too movement, but that does exist on film sets. There is a hierarchy for yeah, certain. For sure. Um, so, uh, again, uh, personality, and this is aside from the actual work, but personality plays a lot. And, um, you know, throwing people photos here and there that will help you. You're photographing actors who are performing, not all actors who are performing want somebody there photographing them even though they're being filmed by a film camera you can be a distraction so you always want to read the room kind of know when you're not really wanted there or when you think you're going to be a distraction to an actor some actors are always distracted and that's a real hard dance to dance around but you got to but you got to be able to read the room so let's say it's a really sensitive scene 
you got to read the room, you got to read the actor, you know, and you develop relationships with actors, you kind of know when to sort of not be there, because you can be a distraction. For any photographer, and every photographer who's ever done what I do has had this happen to them, where in the middle of a scene, an actor stops and says, do you have to be there? Do you have to, you know, why are you shooting me during a take? I mean, that's the most embarrassing thing that can happen to you. No. And it's happened, yes, it's happened, <laughs> it's happened to all of us. So anybody who's starting out, I just want to say to them, if that's happened to you, don't take it personally. It's happened to every one of us. And just I would take it personally. Away. I would overanalyze it and think about it for months. Yeah, uh, you just got to, like, <laughs> you know, apologize very quickly and leave the room. And yeah. that's it. Who is the actor who you were most surprised by, by maybe like their generosity or something like that, or just somebody who you like, you thought you had them pegged this one thing, and then in real life, like they were the coolest person ever. And number two, who was the person that you like dreamed about working with? And then like, what was that experience like? I'll start with you. I'll start with your uh, last question okay. first. <laughs> so I had an opportunity very early in my career to work with James Cagney. You know who James Cagney is? I believe. Oh, let me see. I'm a. I'm a face. <laughs> I'm a. I'm a face person. He was from like the 40s and the 30s, right? Yes. Yeah. No, I, don't, I don't know him though. Okay. So love, you know, the, I would love those to were, but... <laughs> right. Those were my heroes. You okay. know, he, he he played a gangster many in many many movies. Um, so he was a hero to me. You know, and I never ever would ask an actor to. Can I please take a photograph of you? That's very unprofessional. Right? <laughs> but he, and he was 80 years old, and he was confined to a wheelchair when I worked with him. He's the only actor I ever asked, you know, can I take a photograph with you? So, wow. And was he cool yeah. about it? Uh, well, he was 80 years old and not totally with us. Right. So, yeah, he was cool. He was definitely cool about it. That's um, awesome. Your first question, which was, who did I work with that surprised me? Is yeah, that you, that you were just like, like you were just taken back by their like generosity or their, or, or and just in any way, really. But it's, it's a tough, tough question. The actor I had the most fun with was Dustin Hoffman. Really? Yes. That's awesome. What did you guys do? It was a CBS TV movie called Death of the Sales. You know that play? I know, I haven't seen it, but I know of it. Like it's sort of peripherally, but I don't really know it exactly. Death of the Salesman, written by Arthur Miller. It's I'm writing a wonderful, it down. a wonderful play that was made into a couple of movies. Lee J. Cobb did it, in, I think, in the, in the 50s or the 60s. And then Dustin with John Malkovich. I got I to gotta yeah. check it out. This has been so much fun. I really have had a great time with this. This is. Uh, I knew when we talked on the phone it would be good, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. And uh, okay. now whenever I see Mar Martin Scorsese's mom, I'm going to think of you. <laughs> Having dinner over there. Was she was she a good cook, by the way? I, I would imagine like oh, yeah. amazing Italian like meatballs. I don't remember what I think we had veal, but I don't remember so long ago. It's, you know, like thirty five years ago. Um, I think it was veal, but yeah, she's a great cook. I remember on Goodfellas she made a she made pizza for the whole crew, or I, I think it was pizza. It was some Italian thing. I think it was pizza, but yes, I mean she's passed on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they were really nice, genuine uh, people who were very, very proud of their son, you know, so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, All right. Well, uh, where can people find you online? Any, anything you want to plug? This is for you. And then, and then uh, you know, they can, they can look at my Instagram. It's Barry Wetcher, you know, 
at Barry Electro, however you do. I don't know what the <laughs> call signal is, but just my name. And um, I know you're BarryWetcher.com. That's W-E-T. Right. That's my website. But uh, if they want to look at uh, Instagram, uh has more stuff on it than my website. So cool. you can just Google my name and there it is. All right. Thanks, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks, buddy. Have a great day. All right, brother. Take care. Bye.